Welcome to the milk bar. 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 Welcome along to episode 535 of the Milk Bar. Jason Forrest here with you as ever. And coming up on the show, we'll be having a chat with Peter Mackay Burns about Rialto, his film, which is currently up for a bursary award. We'll find out about people scrolling 40 miles a year. Will Meller has got the inside info on that one. We'll have Susie Dent on the line chatting about how to enrich our word power to make sure we use some great descriptive words when we're talking to the blind or partially sighted. That's coming up and talking about a campaign by Guide Dogs for the Blind. And we'll be finding out about the Passion Play. Uh, It takes place in a small German village. About half the population get involved. We'll be talking to their Jesus on an event that's been running since the 1600s. And we'll have some fantastic new music too. But first of all, on the 8th of October at the Stafford Gatehouse, I Believe in Unicorns is going to be on stage. Fingers crossed we do. Somebody I think certainly does is Daniel Miller. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Nice to chat to you. Well, good to talk to you too. And uh, this work is the uh, from the pen of Michael Morpurgo. That's right. Yes, it is. Um, it's probably one of his lesser well-known um, stories. Um, it's a hidden gem, so a lot of people will know Warhorse, for example, which he wrote, mm-hmm. and uh, and there are uh, oh well, he's written an incredible number of um, of books. Um, he's a, a real master storyteller, um, but I believe in unicorns is a very very beautiful story, um, and as I say, it's it's lesser well known, but a, a complete joy. Now, you're a storyteller by trade, so what brings you to telling this story of Michael's? So, I've been a storyteller for very many years, and um, my daughter began a storytelling club when she was about six, and she just announced to me that that's what she was going to do, and she invited (laughs) friends, I know, and she set up the sitting room, and... Um, she always wanted to um, have food, so I had to go out and buy all sorts of different foods. You were head of nibbles, to, right? Yeah. To, yes, exactly. Um, and she wove those into her stories. So she just made up stories, and then she would invite other children to come up and uh, tell stories or a joke or some anecdote. Anyway, one of the mothers at the uh, at the end of two years, in fact, we had. Uh, huge numbers of children and uh, parents coming in for this storytelling session. At the end of that, one of the mothers uh, gave me a book to say thank you very much. And it was about uh, a librarian who shares stories. And she said, I think this is um, perfect for, you know, to say thank you. And it was the story of I Believe in Unicorns. And I fell in love with it instantly. Um <laughs> because it was about a little boy who's eight years old, who doesn't want to go to school, doesn't want to read and write, just wants to be up on the mountains playing. And he's dragged to the library by his mother. And there he discovers that there is as much adventure and excitement and wonder in the pages of the books as there is up on the hillside. Um, Yeah, it just spoke to me. Now, do, do you personally color. believe in unicorns then at the moment? Yes. Good. I can say that absolutely. You have to see the show to understand <laughs> why I can say that so categorically. Um, obviously, they're mythical creatures, mm-hmm. but um, the way that Michael has um, woven this story allows you, everyone, to go out believing in unicorns. But I'm not going to give it away. You're going to have to come and see it. No spoilers. And there are two showings, as it were, one thirty and 4pm. So this is a great That's opportunity right. for schools as well if they want to get some groups over to this. Yes, and uh, Michael often, his books are often read on the curriculum, aren't they? Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, I would say we say six plus. Um, but in fact, what I would recommend for schools is that it's seven or eight plus um, because actually it's the eight nine ten eleven year olds who really get to understand the layers of it Mm -hmm. Um, and there are layers you know again with Michael's books often 
he goes to those dark places. He's not afraid of actually looking at the sadness of life as well as the hope. Well, certainly in the uh, the story I've seen on stage, which, which he, he explored the tsunami that, of course, uh, hits uh, some very vulnerable parts of the world. Uh, you know, yeah. the, the, there, are, there are many layers to that, and the way these things are presented very often, it does help to, to, to bring the whole story to life. And as a storyteller, that is, that is yeah, it's part of the job. You have to be able to express this in such a way as people can, can get the story. Now, are you working with many props, or is it mostly about the tale itself? Um, I have the most incredible um, designer who has produced uh, a wonderful set. So I worked with a director and a designer, and I've worked with them over a number of um, shows. Um, So when you come on uh, at the beginning, it looks like it's a pile of books that are uh, misarranged and all waiting to be filed. And um, we do a book swap, so um, families are invited to bring a book um, that's age appropriate, so six plus, that they don't want any more, that they can uh, bring back to the library, because that's mm-hmm. where we start the story. Uh, and at the end, because they help me save the books from a burning library, they can do a, a swap and take a different book home with them. Um, but it's all books, everything emerges out of the books, um, but there is quite a lot of magic in the books. So there are all sorts of things that you aren't necessarily expecting, um, including me climbing on the books and over <laughs> the books and around the books. Um, yeah, so so it is uh, it is a theatrical storytelling performance. Um, some people would say it's just a straight piece of theatre. Um, so yeah, it is it is the story which I think leads everything. Always leads everything, doesn't it? But. Uh, there's a lot of invention, there's a lot of play, uh, and it's um, it, it, it's definitely visually enticing and magical. And an ever-changing set, it's always going to look a little bit different every single show, which I like too. Yes, that's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, I yes. that's special. Yeah. And this is part of the, the, yeah. the magic of, of Michael's work and all that you're doing with it over here. As I say, it is yes. at the Stafford Gatehouse, it is Tuesday the 8th of October, 1.30 and 4pm. So one for an afternoons with schools and the other one, it could be school groups or it could be a dash over after you've done your school day and enjoy it with the family. StaffordGatehouseTheatre.co.uk is the website, 01785 619080, the box office number. That's 01785 619 9080. It's Michael Mulpergo's story told and, and brought to life and envisaged and, and everything else that it is by uh, Daniel Miller. I believe in unicorns and it's going to be a treat. Daniel, thank you for joining us and sharing some of the tale. Lovely to chat to you. Thank you. Coming up on the 27th of September is the release of Daniel Steer's second single from his forthcoming solo album, This Is The Wire.
Daniel Steer with The Wire here on The Milk Bar. A survey has shown that more than half of Brits believe their vocabulary is limited by modern communication, yet more than a third don't think improving their vocabulary is that important. Somebody who knows a thing or two about words is Countdown star Susie Dent. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jason. And in the studio with you, a guide dog engagement officer, Dave Kent. Hello to you. Good afternoon. (laughs) So, first of all, this survey carried out to see how we communicate. Vocabulary is an important thing, but very often uh, we don't use as many words as we could, do we? Uh, No, I think that's true. I think possibly more accurate would be to say that we use different words. We're using different words these days. Um, And the words that we're using tend to be driven by needs of space and time uh, at the expense of some of the richer, more, uh, well, possibly not more beautiful, but beautiful words that we do have at our disposal, but we just don't draw on them anymore because there's there's not that pressing need. Um, And I suppose from my point of view, I think if we're not careful, they might go away altogether. And that would be a great loss because we have these huge dictionaries full of words and they get things added to them, the made-up stuff that people use on the internet these days. Uh, (laughs) But how how do you feel about some of that? Because some of these, they must just grate a little bit when you know there's a real word for whatever it was they're talking about. No, do you know what? I honestly don't mind that because I think as long as we play around with language, as long as we remain inventive, as long as we come up with new blends, whether it's, you know, bromance or, oh gosh, I can't, I I don't know, one I had the other day, this pregress, which I love. Pregret is um, regretting something even before you do it because you know you're going to regret it. Um, I don't mind things like that because it proves that language is alive and well. It proves that you know that we still care about language to um, to create and to be inventive with it. And English, more than any other language, I would say, is um, more the most versatile and the most able to kind of be flexible enough for us to play around with it as much as we do. And I mean, language itself. I mean, when we look into those who were partially sighted, uh, the, the descriptive words are important when you're trying to get an idea across when you can't use emojis. Hugely important, and I'll um, come to Dave in a minute because um, if you listen to Dave, you will you will see what a reliance on language actually does, which is to enhance your vocabulary and to make you just more articulate than I think any any person I've met in recent weeks, recent months. Dave is amazing. Um, and yes, I think the powers of description are hugely important to people who experience the world around us in a different way. And they're totally reliant on that kind of auditory or verbal experience. Um, and, you know, for, for those sighted companions to be able to convey what they are experiencing in a way that's kind of articulate and evocative and beautiful and fun is actually really important and that's what increasing your word power can do. So I mean so Dave uh, the language is important when it comes to making sure a guide dog is trained as well I assume because they're going to be picking up on spoken word as well as everything else around them. A guide dog has a, an appreciation of, of a number of words um, that, is, that is fixed in its mind and that it will react and respond to the, you, you say partially sighted. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they have the benefit of, of some vision, but there are many people like myself who have no vision at all. And that's where language really does come into its own. That's where the power of descriptive language can mean having, uh, having a reasonable experience or having a really good experience because the person is using language in a way that can bring alive an event or a situation uh, that I'm involved in. And why, why we're, we're talking about this, a survey that we've, that we've uh, we conducted and released the findings of, which really do throw up some startling kind of results like, Uh, For example, did you know that a quarter of people don't think it's important to improve um, their their language skills by um, improving their their lexicon, by learning new words? Now, okay, you could say, well, fair enough, but what that will do is restrict them. And were they to be trying to describe something to me, that would be restrictive. So what we're, we're asking people to do is to think about the language they're using, to, to think about using language inventively, and to sign up to, uh, to a guide dog scheme called My Guide. This is where we want to um, match uh, a vision-impaired person usually a person who finds it extremely difficult to get out and about to do ordinary things that Susie and I would take for granted, um, to partner them with a guide, to train that guide, and to be able to take them out and about 
uh, on their terms to enjoy normal events and to have those events described by people using imaginative language. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be a wordsmith or a, uh, you know, a language expert to really make a vision-impaired person's life that much more inclusive using the, the, just the joy and the beauty of the, the English language that we've, um, we've accumulated over, over centuries. Yeah, so you've already thrown the word lexical at me, which of course I know the meaning of, but wouldn't even think to use in conversation. So uh, when it comes down to I mean, Susie, uh, if you can be uh, overly descriptive for me uh, and, and maybe describe your favourite meal in more colourful language than we would normally expect to hear no swear words, oh, please. Oh, my goodness. Now you've completely put me on the spot. Absolutely. Um, first of all, I have to think of what my favourite meal would be. I think it would be spicy, piquant, salivacious, Vegetable, vegetable. I need to find a synonym for vegetable. Um, okay, <laughs> this is really hurry. Verdantly green, luscious vegetable curry. And actually, do you know what? That probably sounds ridiculous to most people. Um, but if I was trying to describe what I had on my plate today, hopefully I would do better than that. What do you think, Dave? What, how, how about steaming rice, sizzling yes. steak? Yes, I'm a veggie. Yeah. I'm with the sizzling. Yeah, bubbling beef. <laughs> Bubbling, you see. Dave yeah. is a real fan of alliteration, so that's another good thing. And we've both been talking today about how wordplay is is great for um, you know the, the tips that we're giving for increasing your word power. Wordplay is one of them. Just play around with words, enjoy them, enjoy the feel of them, enjoy the sound of them. Um, learn a new word every day. Um, that can be really fun. Listen to podcasts, listen to audio books. There's so many ways of enriching your word power, and that goes for all of us. You know, not not just for um, enabling us to communicate with um, people with sight loss, but also to improve ourselves and to kind of, you know, be able to imagine things in our heads in in more evocative ways. Definitely, and play around with words in, you know, with yourself. Play around with words with your children. Imagine words, invent words, family words. I'm sure we all do it. I'm sure a number (laughs) of your listeners do it. But it's just that fun with the sound and the shape of words. That can mean so much to somebody like myself, who, you know, who's, as I say, my lifeblood, my understanding of the world around me is is obtained through language, imaginative language. Yeah, use those words, enjoy them, and uh, let's let's have a a, a, yeah, a brand new word that you think that I probably haven't used before from each of you, and I will try and go and take that out into my world today. Okay. Yes, we have got our words of the day, haven't we, Dave? Okay, mine is. Mumpsimus. Mumpsimus, 200, 300 years old, is somebody who insists that they are right despite clear evidence that they are not. I know a few of those. Mine is lallygag, to be slovenly, slothful, and to just kind of let the day, let your whole attitude drag along behind you in no rush for anything. I'll give you an added one for extra and extra there. If you are lallygagging, you're also a bit limacious, which means slug-like. <laughs> well, we, we definitely don't want to be slug-like in getting these extra 4,500 new volunteers for my guide by 2023. Where can we go to find out more on all of this? So, for more information on the My Guide service and all our guide dog services, please give us a visit at guide dog guide I'll give the teeth back to the dog. <laughs> you can look us up on guidedogs.org.uk. That's guidedogs.org.uk and sign up for the My Guide service. I think you'll be pleasantly amazed with yourselves. <laughs> okay, oh, it sounds good to me. Dave Kent, Guide Dogs Engagement Officer, thank you for joining us. And Susie Dent, uh, I, I, I need a better word than just thank you. What, what should I use? No, no, I need to brush up on my curry descriptions, clearly. Okay. Um, <laughs> So you don't need to describe me in any way. But thank you, Jason, for having us all. Good to speak to you both. Thanks again. Try for now. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Time for the tune. This time it comes from Richard Strange. He is out on the road doing the tunes of Lou Reed. Is at the O2 Academy 2 in Birmingham on Thursday, the 26th of September. Let's take a listen to his single. This is my friend George.
My friend George from Richard Strange. From bumping into strangers to browsing on the loo, Brits admit they can't stop scrolling on their phone. I think I'm as bad as anybody for that. Somebody who I'm, I'm sure doesn't get distracted is Will Meller, actor and celebrity dad. And we've also on the line, head of growth at OnePlus, Kate Parkin. Good afternoon to you both. Good afternoon. Right, so, I mean, our phones are an obsession. So uh, tell us a bit about this survey. Well, it's, it's a survey. It just shows you how much we actually... Uh, on our phone scrolling. Like you said, it's 40 miles a year. <laughs> I mean, scrolling, and that's like 180 metres a day of scrolling. It's 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 a lot, uh, and it just shows you, you know, how much we are actually just on our phones and scrolling through. Uh, there's actually a quiz, um, OnePlus quiz on social media, on Facebook and Twitter. You can go on and, and find out how much you actually are scrolling. Do the quiz, but you've got to be honest. Okay, that, that is the tricky bit, because often we don't like to admit, when things like screen time come along on our phone, do you think, no, really, I haven't done that, have I? It must be wrong. No, but it's true. You have been on it, and you've got to be honest with yourself. You've just got to work out. I said, I've, I've been saying this before. It's, it's, it's everything in moderation, you know. It's fine. It's, it's The way the world is the way it is. You know what I mean? We're not going to stop it. It's just it's just being aware of what you're doing and where you're doing it. I mean, there's uh, the percentage of people that are actually walking into things while scrolling on their phones <laughs> or missing their bus stop or missing their train stop is unbelievable. And, and, and a lot of this happens in the loo as well, doesn't it? So people are sat there scrolling whilst on the toilet. And uh, they, that just sounds a little bit wrong. <laughs> it does, if you put it that way. It does yeah, sound a bit wrong, yeah. You end up with numb legs. You've been there for that long. <laughs> that is bad. And do you have trouble with the kids as well? Do they like to sit in there scrolling? Are they doing their 40 miles a year? I think my kids are well up on their scrolling. They're, they're, they've passed their 40 miles a year. They've gone. Um, they're, they're, I mean, it's one of them things, as I said, uh, it's, it's, it's like, you know, we go for dinner. We don't have the phones there. We don't, they don't have the phones in the bedrooms. You know, I think the one thing is, as a parent, you've just got to be a parent. You can't just let them do what they want because kids will be on it all day and every day. If you can, they would never go outside. If you could eat from the phone, they'd probably do that as well. So, <laughs> you know, you've just got to be, got to be aware. I mean, we're not going to stop it. I don't want to stop it. I think phones can be and are fantastic for, for lots of things. It's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing to find out how much we actually are scrolling. Uh, and, and 51% on Facebook. I mean, that's that's a busy one. Uh, what else are we seeing on the app front, Kate? Well, we've got all the news sites as well. There's obviously a lot going on at the moment. Um, and <laughs> Instagram. I'm currently doing at my house, so I'm very much into the home decoration inspiration at the moment. And the, so this is you know, what your Instagram feed is full of, different paint colours and the like. But uh, I mean, if, for everybody, it is a bit different. I suppose when it comes down to it, I mean, productivity is one thing that we would be uh, looking at, at trying to do with, with work. But whenever you're trying to use a phone for work, it is distracting to do the fun stuff as well. Yeah, for sure. I think it's quite interesting. You see that 4.12pm is when people are scrolling on their phone. I think it's the new tea time. Taking a break, looking at content. 
and uh, using the phone battery up and uh, and that, that's one thing that is often a focus for people is how long their phone battery is going to last and I'm guessing you guys at OnePlus are focused on that to make sure people can get their scrolling in. For sure we actually have a very quick charge warp charge solution so you've got a whole day's power in half an hour so your scrolling needs are all catered for. It's got a very high quality screen as well and do you know that there's another fact here that's, which is unbelievable that it's only 7% of people who actually um, think about the kind of the, the screen quality on their phones and mm -hmm. OnePlus I've got a very high resolution screen quality and it's a quick refresh as well so if you're like me watching your sport uh, like, like I watch a lot of my football on the move or whatever I'm watching sport wise uh, but there's a very quick refresh rate so the OnePlus phone is you know it's, it's really high tech and it's about making sure that experience is a good one because I mean 40 miles a year that actually is quite a workout for your fingers isn't it is there not some sort of award we should get if we can hit you know, a world record in this that's a good idea let's do it you okay. know, I've got a little story to tell you because you know when, when, we're, when we're on set filming um, mm. you've got to have your phones off or on silent or you know out of the way you can't have it I mean imagine on Downton Abbey there's a phone in the back of <laughs> you kill the scene but uh, there's, uh, there was a, I was doing I can't mention the name but I was doing a scene and uh, when you're doing a scene they're two-hander they call it two people they do the shot one way they do the shot the other way with single camera and, and obviously the shot was on this female artist I was working with and then they had to turn the camera around on me so we're doing the same scene but the shot's on me so she's behind the camera and I'm doing my acting and I look and I'm talking to her and she's looking down scrolling her phone whilst, <laughs> I, whilst I'm acting and she's not even looking at me and I just and I actually stopped the camera and said what are you doing? <laughs> uh, oh, uh, um, yeah, uh, I thought that's how, it, that's how intense my acting is. She couldn't even bother to look at me. She's scrolling through her phone. See, you're, Unbelievable. Just, you're such a natural. She didn't need to pay any attention to you. That's what it is. De Niro would not put up with it. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Where can we go to find out more about all of this? Yeah, so head to um, OnePlus Facebook and Twitter and do, that, do the quiz. Find out what type of scroller you are. Okay, so check it out. I'm looking out to make sure I'm not embarrassing myself with my scrolling. Uh, it's quality, not quantity. Exactly. <laughs> That's what counts. Uh, Will Miller and Kate Parkin, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take some more music. This is I Sleep More Sound. It's a brand new single from Laura Victoria.
That is out now, Laura Victoria, with her brand new single, I Sleep More Sound. Preparations are underway for the Oberammergau Passion Play. It takes place in Germany, it's performed every 10 years and it depicts Jesus' passions. Only people who are either born in the village or have lived there for more than 20 years are allowed to take part. And it's been ongoing since 1633. To tell us more, I'm joined by their Jesus, Frederick Mayat. Good afternoon, sir. Hello, thank you. Well, good to have you with us. And uh, tell us about your history in uh, Oberammergau. Is that uh, your native town? Yes, of course. I was born in Oberammergau, and uh, so if you want to take part in the passion play, you have to be born in Oberammergau or live there at least for 20 years. And so it's my third time I take part in the passion play. In 2000, I played the disciple, John, and I already played Jesus in the last passion play in 2010, and I'm really honored that I'm allowed to take this part again in 2020 next year. Because there are 2,000 actors taking part in this, aren't there? So this is an absolutely massive piece of theatre. Yeah, definitely. So Oberammergau is a small village located in the south of, of uh, Germany. And so there are 1,800 adults in the play and another 650 children. So it's half of the population of the village uh, involved in the play. And yeah, in the biggest mass scene in, in, in the Passion Play, there are almost 1,000 persons on stage. So it's really, really impressive. That's, that's one big stage. So what is the setting for this? Um, the stage was built in the 100 years ago. So it's an open air stage, but the audience is, is under undercover. And it's, yeah, it's so almost 45 meters uh, wide and uh, open air. And, yeah, and it looks like the, the city of Jerusalem. So but. Um, yeah, it's a yeah one of the largest theaters we have in Germany, and uh, and also set for just one production. I, I'm going to guess. Does anything else get performed there? Um, yeah, you're right. In former times, it was empty for nine years, and uh, just a few years ago, we said no, that's not possible, and we started to have some classical concerts there. We, we did some opera production, but also, for example. Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream of, of Shakespeare and some biblical plays about Moses, for example. And so uh, we we started to have like small summer production. Small means we also have like three to four hundred persons on stage, but <laughs> yeah. for us that's small. <laughs> that's, that's that's a tiny production for you guys, but yeah. the rest yeah. of the world would see that as a major uh, achievement. <laughs> but this, I mean, this is the 42nd time this has happened, but it happens every 10 years. So this has been ongoing since it first began in 1634. Yeah, um, yeah, it's uh, one of the oldest um, productions or ongoing theatre productions we have. It started in the Thirty Years' War, as you said. The, the Swedish troops break, brought the Black Plague to to our town, and no one knew what was happening in those days. And the people thought it's a punishment by God, and half of the population died. It was a lot of chaos, and then they said, we, may, we make a vow, we make a promise to God. If God takes this disease away, we will perform the last days of Jesus Christ every 10 years and the history of uh, or the chronicles say that from this day no one died anymore and so the first passion play then was performed in 1634 and uh, we didn't play for example in 1770 because uh, during the days of enlightenment the ruler of bavaria said it's not allowed to show the holiest thing on stage and he forbid the passion plays in all over bavaria and then in 1940 we didn't play because of the second world war and so we missed it in, in those days, and then we started again after the Second World War. But aside from dark days, this has been ongoing, and it takes place over a period of about five months. There's 104 performances, and it's a five-hour play, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we, we start, the opening night is May 16, and then we play five times a week, and it's only Monday and Wednesday we don't play, and uh, the last show is in uh, October the 4th, and yeah, it's for us it's very demanding and uh, but everyone is really dedicated to the play because the first time you usually join the play you're four or five six or seven years old and then you grow into it and everyone tries to 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 make it happen and try uh, for example a friend of mine she plays mary in in the, in the next uh, passion play she's usually she's a flight attendant at lufthansa and she says no i quit my job for half a year 
I want to I want to be in the play, and it's so important for everyone in our village. And we try everything to bring the the best play on on stage. And uh, yeah, uh, for us, it's also very special. And how many people can come and see the play each time you perform? Um, in the in the audience, we have around about uh, almost five thousand seats. So overall, we have around about half a million visitors. And half of the visitors come from English-speaking countries. So, uh, for example, that's why in, it was a very long time. It was a very local place so until the 1850, 1860. But then there were the first reviews in newspapers in France and then also in England. And then the inventor of tourism, Thomas Cook from England, came to see the play. And, he's, and then he brought the first... Uh, groups to 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 Bavaria to Oberammergau in 1880, and then he he also invited some members of the of the royal family from from England, and they came, and so it got more and more popular here uh, here in, in the UK, and we a lot of visitors uh, are uh, since those days are are coming to see the play from the UK. And so it's a mixture of spoken dramatic text, musical and choral accompaniment. So mm-hmm. is this all going to be in German then? Yes. So. Um, so it's uh, two and a half hours, then another break, and another two and a half hours, and one third of the passion play production is music. So uh, we have a big choir on stage, over 100 singers. Uh, we have 100 members in the orchestra, and but everyone who who comes gets a textbook, and uh, they most of the visitors, of course, know the story and they can follow easily the the play. And I talk to some. Uh, uh, persons from from England in the in the last play, and they said no, it was easy to follow the the play and to understand what's going on on stage. But uh, of course, we we play it in German. And the the brilliance of just seeing something on that sort of vast scale must be awe inspiring on its own. Um, yeah, we we always got a good feedback, so I think the people enjoy it and uh, or, or yeah, and and take something with them. So if you're into the story, I think it's something special and uh, yeah it's only every 10 years and uh, it's uh, something special for you uh, where do people actually go to find out more about this I'm guessing this is a dedicated website and another legion of people selling tickets for this yeah on our website peshplay-oberamagau.de find every, every information you need or you just google it and um, there's you, you can buy tickets right now it's uh, they start from 30 euros up to 180 euros. You find packages, and we have a, we have a lot of two operators here in the UK. Uh, they have packages for for the passion play, and then you find every information you need about the history and uh, everything else. So passion play hyphen that's the website. Go for it. Check it out there. Be part of the uh, once a decade experience that uh, you can share with the, uh, just the just the half a million people. But it's you know the way we normally consume things these days. Although it's a big audience, it is still a very personal thing. I'm sure as well. Yes, definitely. We have if you come to Oberammergau, um, so we don't have a lot of uh, industry in, in in the village and we have a lot of guest houses and hotels and if you go there you see um, sometimes if you go to a guest house you stay with a family and they the members they are part of the of the of the passion play and then you have breakfast with them or you, if you go to a hotel the the boss of the hotel is a, is a member of the the passion play so if you come to Obama it's still very personal and you meet per- persons and you you can talk and uh, I think it's uh, uh, a unique experience to 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 see. It sounds absolutely phenomenal, a massive piece of art and something which has continued for centuries. Well, well worth getting yourself along to if you can. Oberamago's Passion Play is coming up next year. Frederick Mayer there. Jesus, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on your show. One last tune for you now. This is Lay Down Your Gun. It's another one that's out on the 27th of September and it's from Nuala. Be so bad. 
Noala and lay down your gun. The finalists for the BFI Film Festival Bursary Awards have been announced, with a substantial £50,000 being offered to the winner. This is going to massively help someone in the creative industry. To tell us more, I'm joined now by Peter Mackay Burns. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. So, uh, t- tell us a, a bit about the the award uh, that you could be you know, gaining from financially for your work here. Um, the award, um, the IWC Filmmaker Bursary. Um, with associate, you know, in association with BFI, is a, a, an award for distinctive and innovative um, films uh, that are screening at the London Film Festival. So it's a massive, you know, to be shortlisted is a massive achievement. It's a great honour to, to be considered for, for, the, for the award and also for the film to be viewed by the judges, such as Danny Boyle. You know, it's wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, it's one thing them going down the cinema to catch up on some good independent movies. It's another thing to have them put in front of them uh, for them to experience what you've been working on. So, I mean, uh, it must have been uh, something you're really pleased about just getting this far. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely over the moon. About I was, I was so surprised when they called me. I was in the park with my son and I thought it was someone trying to sell me PPI. I'd <laughs> <laughs> been shortlisted for an award. I was like, sorry, not interested. I went, oh, wait a minute, I applied for something. (laughs) (laughs) Genuinely, it it was quite shocking and very humbling, you know. Um, I love cinema. I make, you know, films for independent films, and uh, it's great for for the work to be recognised and to be in such great company with two other illustrious filmmakers too. Well, I mean, obviously, when it comes to film production, there, there's uh, traditional methods of going into it, which is normally being the child of somebody who was already a director and getting away with it that way, or, or some you know, less traditional routes into th- filmmaking. And, uh, and it's something that your success has come uh, a little bit later on in life than maybe you would have liked. I didn't plan to, to um, have some success later on in life. It's just, you know... Life had its own plan for me. Yeah. You know? uh, I started making films when I was in my mid thirties. I thought if I don't start now, I never will. And I started making short films, and I had a couple of kids, and you know, 
I carried on making films and I was just lucky that one started to build upon another one and I was really fortunate enough to, to, to start to, to find a, a small audience for my films. I'm very, very grateful to such a privileged position, you know. Well, Rialto itself, centering on a character in his mid-40s, married with two teenage children, telling this story must have been quite a challenging one. It was a, a pretty challenging um, film. The script, I have to say, by the great Irish screenwriter Marco Halloran, was wonderful. And when I read it, I thought, I must do all I can to, to bring this to the screen. Over five days, a man's life, an ordinary guy's life, spirals out of control. And... By the end of the five days, he finally is able to face up to the to the issues that he's helped create in his life. And it's a wonderful human story, and I thought, I have to, have to make this movie. When you're uh, approaching this from a directorship point of view, obviously you're there to get this looking right on screen. You've got other people working with you, but uh, it, what do you think is your starting point when it comes to making the movie look right? Well, I think it's important that every um, film has its own visual style, its own look. You know, all the great directors, you know, they move the camera in a way, if you like, Scorsese or, I don't know, Uzo or... Uzo, sorry, not Uzo, it's a Greek drink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which have, you know, Danny Boyle even, you know, they move the camera in a certain way and they move the actors and they use colours in a certain way. And so I suppose I decide in advance, you know, I'm always looking for light. I always like colour to express emotions in films. So I, I look at lots of reference material and then I look at the film and then I make a little decision with the, the cinematographer. How do we move the camera? Should we move it? Where do we put the camera? And through that, you know, a language for the film you know, evolves. For example, in this movie, the camera only moves when, when the main character moves. So the camera's linked to him, and what I'm trying to do with that is, of course, link the audience with the main character, you know. So there's lots of little things you can do to, to help create a visual look, but it's more about the feel of a film um, as much as the look, I think. Interesting, certainly. And with a £50,000 bursary uh, up for grabs here, what do you think that this will cause to happen in your career? I mean, is this something which is going to uh, help repay the funds you've spent on, on films so far? Or has it got uh, a big project written on it if it does come to you? Sure. Um, well, even to be shortlisted is a great honour, but if I am fortunate enough to, 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 to win the award, it's a life-changing amount of money. and It's a life-changing opportunity. Um, I'd use the money to feed into my next project. It would give me time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I would get time to make my next film. I wouldn't have to take you know, some part-time jobs and things in order to try pay the mortgage and, uh, and get the film on the go. So it's a great opportunity to develop as a filmmaker to the next level. You know, I can use this money, should I want it, directly to influence my next film, which I hope will be a bit larger in scale, um, and do a, a thriller which will deal with a, a wider, uh, hopefully attract a wider audience or grow a wider audience. Mm-hmm. And, and things like the IWC Schaffhausen Bursary Award, I mean, this is vitally important to the British film industry, isn't it? It, it really does help oh, the independents grow. Absolutely, absolutely. The independent cinema is the lifeblood of British cinema. I love all cinema. I go to see all different types. I happen to be fascinated by people and everyday life, so I want to see that reflected on screen, you know? Mm-hmm. And with the other two directors, to make work that's personal and that, that speaks to a contemporary audience. This filmmaker, Bursary, to me, says, you know, that cinema seeks to be inclusive, so it must find new voices from different parts of the society, from different parts of the community, irrespective of ace gender, ethnicity, this bursary will help fund new films for new audiences and that's the future of cinema. Absolutely. And uh, things like the London Film Festival, it's ongoing. I mean, th- this is another great opportunity to see these films. So can we see uh, Rialto as part of this? Yes, absolutely. We're screening at the London Film Festival. We've been so lucky to, to be invited to screen there. Um, and if you go to the London Film Festival website, they give the dates of the screening and the, the tickets and the times and everything you want to find there. But for me, it's a huge honour to be British, to have a, 
a, a film on the most prestigious film festival in the UK and the West End on a Saturday night. It's like it's a dream come true for a filmmaker. And uh, we will be able to see this elsewhere. Obviously, in the Midlands, we would uh, very much like to be able to get our hands on watching this movie. I'm sure. Yes, um, I, I believe they're, they're talking to distributors about doing that just now. My first movie, Daphne, um, was distributed in the UK and uh, in Europe, so I'm hoping this one follows suit. And I, I do a tour right into Nottingham, uh, Birmingham and Manchester to all of the independent cinemas with my first movie. And I had some great times doing Q's and A's with uh, local audiences all throughout the country, and I, I hope to continue that with this film. Well, it'd be fantastic to see you somewhere like the uh, the Independence Center with the Lighthouse in Wolverhampton, so fingers crossed something like that will come to pass. Obviously, with the publicity around this one, that's going to really help getting uh, the word out there. But for now, Peter Mackay-Burns, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak to you. That's a lot for this week. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 535. Back with episode 536 next week. I'll see you then. Ta-ra for now. Goodbye from the mill bar. 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 Yeah. Goodbye from the mill bar. Yeah.